Is there even such a thing as the Latinx vote or should we be thinking about it more in terms of the Cuban American vote, the Mexican American vote, or as you mentioned, the South Florida Cuban vote, the Chicago Mexican American vote, and really separate us the way they separate everybody else? I think if they want to get our votes, they need to. Welcome to Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality, a podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. In this episode, we are going to talk about obstacles Latinx and BIPOC voters face when it comes to voting and a breakdown of the Latinx vote. I am Ivan Resendiz Gutierrez, and I am a litigation and appellate attorney at the Portland office of Miller Nash, Graham and Dunn, LLP a multi-service law firm with an international reach. Today, I am honored to be speaking with Multnomah County Commissioner Jessica Vega-Peterson. Commissioner Peterson has served on the Multnomah County Board of Commissioners since 2017. As Commissioner, Jessica sits on several regional transportation tables and champions legislation on environmental justice, climate, and air quality improvement. She co-chaired the Preschool for All Task Force which passed Universal Preschool for Children in Monoma County in November 2020. Before being elected to the board, Jessica served as a state representative in the Oregon legislature, where she was the first Latina elected to the House. She has graciously agreed to join me today in the wake of Election Day 2020 to discuss concrete obstacles and psychological barriers to the Latinx and BIPOC vote and a breakdown of the Latinx vote, El Voto Latinx. Welcome, Commissioner Peterson, and gracias for joining us. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You are the first Latina elected to the Oregon House of Representatives. Congratulations. That is a huge deal. I'm Mexican-American. My parents immigrated to this country from Guerrero, Mexico, and I always thought that my mom would make a great politician and she runs our house like she is one. Um, <laughs> but I'm curious if do you experience any barriers that you would call systemic um, and or race-based in pursuing elected office as a Latina in Oregon? You know, I think the biggest systemic barrier, the systemic um, where systemic racism shows up is that there just weren't people who look like me who are running for office. I think that's changing. I think that this election in Oregon showed that in so many ways when we had so many more black, brown, immigrant, young people who were running and winning for office. So I think that is changing. But for me, there hadn't been a Latina in the Oregon House before, and there had only been one in the Oregon Senate. And so it was forging a new path in a way. And I think that we see that now when we look at the leadership in this state at the statewide elected office level, at the congressional level, there aren't necessarily people who look like us, who are black and brown, who are holding those offices. And so I think that there is still a lot of work to do. Um, and I think that is, you know, that has the basis in, in systemic racism historically. I also, I started running for office when my kids were really young. Like I decided to run for office when my son was 18 months old and my daughter was three and a half. You know, I had comments, I had people that I talked to that said young mothers with kids should be at home with their kids. They shouldn't be out there running for office. I had 
other another elected official who just said like, oh, no, this isn't the right job for somebody who is a mom of young kids. You know, so I think that's also a piece of it is it's being um, a person of color, but it's also being a woman and being a mother. There are beliefs in our society about what's proper behavior and what's not. And it's fighting to make sure that you've got a chance to step in and step up and take the opportunities when they come. And that's why for me, it's been important to be a role model and to be a mentor, you know, for, for folks who are coming up who want to do this. I'm no longer, you know, obviously in the Oregon house, but I say, I say time and time again to the women who are there, there should never be a time when there's not a Latina in the Oregon legislature, like never again. Well, we, when we have that, we need to fight and we need to make sure that that, that never changes. Thank you for that. Given the pushback that you got, um, what made you go through the process? You know, why are you in public service? You know, it's a hard road to do. Um, it's not easy. But, you know, for me, the reason I do this is because of my family. I mean, that's that's always been the motivation for the work that I do and why that I do it. You know, my mom would tell me stories when she was growing up. You know, she was a middle child in a family of nine kids. Um, and she has this you know, and she told me that when she was in fourth grade, she took this test. And it was one of those like standardized tests that kids take across the district. And she got the highest score out of all the fourth graders is my mom, this young little Mexican American girl got the highest score. Um, but then she told me that she didn't even find out about that until she was in high school. And she was talking to a guidance counselor who was like, you should have been on a college brown track. You had the highest score. She never even knew about it. She doubts her parents knew that that was the thing. Um, her school never invested in her. The system didn't think it was important that this young Mexican-American girl who had so much potential was allowed to flourish and thrive. And so, you know, that made me so mad when I heard about it. And it really showed me that our system isn't built to support kids like my mom. And that really motivates the work that I do to change our systems, to give more opportunities to women, to people of color, to people in our community. And that's really the basis of all the work I do, whether it's passing paid sick leave or fighting for our climate or passing universal preschool here in Multnomah County. It's really about giving opportunity to people that haven't had it before and changing the systems that have created the barriers. That is the heart of all of the work that I do. Thank you. Um, there's so much of what you just said that I that I can relate to. I mean, my um, my mom should have either should have been a politician or she should have been a doctor, uh, but she didn't get to finish school. Uh, and she made sure to instill in, in me and, and my two other brothers that we could do anything possible. And to put yourself out there and put your hat in the ring, you might not always win, but you'll definitely learn something uh, because there's a lot of people that don't get those opportunities. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the Latinx vote um, because there's been a lot of talk recently and, and articles written about the Latinx vote. And I'm going to read you some, just the headlines. I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. So one from Politico recently was what Democrats and everyone else are getting wrong about Latino voters. Another one reads, this one's from the New York Times, how Democrats miss Trump's appeal to Latino voters. Another one is Trump's support from Latino voters holds steady. That one's from NPR. Many Latino men are supporting President Trump this election. 
And from the Atlantic, what liberals don't understand about pro-Trump Latinos. Now, I have my own thoughts on this issue, but I'm curious what you think Americans and politicians do understand about the Latinx vote and what they don't understand about the Latinx vote. Uh, so what, what those six articles couldn't figure out, hopefully we can in, <laughs> in this podcast episode. Yeah, I think they just need to listen to us and they'll get all the answers. <laughs> no, I know. So I, I, I saw a friend a few days after the election and they made a comment like, um, you know, about like, oh, yeah, everybody's talking about the Latinx vote in 2020. And we just looked at each other and laughed because it is this thing like, are they not actually talking to the Latinx community about who we are and what our priorities are and what our values are? Because I think anybody can tell them there's no monolith. There's no Latino vote. There's no Latinx vote, right? We are a vast community, huge, right? We're the fastest growing group in the U.S. and the largest minority. I think they were projecting that in 2020, we would actually be the largest voting minority block, but I haven't seen if that's if that happened or not yet. But but it's not just one community. I mean, there's a big difference between a South Florida Cuban voter and a Chicago Mexican voter, and there's different priorities. I also think that there's attempt to try to tell Latinx people what our priorities are supposed to be instead of really listening. I mean, I think all of the Latinx polling companies or consulting companies, they'll say like the priorities of Latinx people are the priorities of everybody. It's the economy, it's education, it's family. It's um, not necessarily niche issues, but there's a whole lot of differences in our community, depending on the country you're from, the background of that country. Do you speak Spanish? Do you not speak Spanish? How long has your family actually been in this country, right? So this attempt to paint everyone with the same brush, I think is easy. I think it's glib, you know, and I think political campaigns need to recognize that fact and do the extra work to truly connect with our communities in the areas that they're concerned about, like actually go on the ground in South Texas along the Rio Grande and talk to those communities and find out why they voted for Trump and what their concerns are and how the jobs that they're concerned about are actually border patrol and oil fields and that's economically what might lead them to vote that way. In the same way that they need to talk to folks in Florida about their concerns around socialism and and folks in other areas of the country where Latinos can and will and do make differences in how elections turn out and to really to make sure that we're activating that to get the results that you want for your campaign. I think that's absolutely something that we have to do. Do you think the, I'm going to call it the talking to instead of listening to the Latinx community, do you think that actually does have an effect on Latinx voters coming out to vote and being involved in, in, in the process? Because they might be turned away by, well, if you're not going to listen to me, then you're definitely not thinking about issues that concern me. So I'm not, I'm just not even going to vote. Since you think you know me, I'm just going to stay at home and let you guys figure it out. Do you think that's going on? You know, I think there's a piece of that. And, you know, when you say that, it makes me think of the people that I know who are Latinx who were supporting Bernie Sanders and who really believed in his message. And I think that for a lot of young Latinx people, they believed in him and his word and really didn't appreciate the assumption that when the candidate became Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden, that 
their votes were assured, right? There was no additional work that went out to to really understand why they felt so strongly about Bernie Sanders and his message. And um, and I think that there was a feeling of resentment. And I think it wasn't just with the Latinx community, to be fair, but I do think that that was an especially thing because it was the assumption that if you're Mexican-American, if you're Latinx, oh, you're going to vote Democrat no matter what. Well, you know, people felt strongly that their voice wasn't being heard. And I think that had an impact on the voter turnout that we eventually saw. So I do think that that's an, that's an issue. I think the antidote for that, though, is doing the grassroots work and having folks in the community be leaders in that work. You know, when I think of who I trust, it's my family, it's the community that I trust. Those are the people that I want to hear from. Those are the people that I want to have conversations with and who have influence on me. And I think it is about candidates and campaigns doing the extra work to make those connections. That's why the organizations that are really building that work and, and doing that hard work, like East County Rising in um, out in East Multnomah County and Washington Ignite in Washington County, which are the two counties that are around in or around Portland, those I think are going to have huge impacts and lasting impacts on increasing voter participation for uh, not just the Latinx community, but hugely in the Latinx community, but also just in communities that don't historically turn out at high volumes. Thank you. So you you and I both know people who identify as Latinx and and we understand that we come in all different shapes and sizes with different backgrounds. Some of us uh, who uh, uh, were born in Mexico, some of us were born in the U.S., some of us are second, third, fourth generation. Uh, some of us speak Spanish, as, as you mentioned. Some of us don't. Some of us look, uh, as, as people like to tell me, white. Uh, some of us don't look white. We look different, uh, ethnically ambiguous. Uh, some, some, and I prefer this, exotic. Um, <laughs> I, I will never turn that down. Uh, but I'm wondering... Is there even such a thing as the Latinx vote, or should we be thinking about it more in terms of the Cuban American vote, the Mexican American vote, or as you mentioned, the South Florida Cuban vote, the Chicago Mexican American vote, and really separate us the way they separate everybody else? I think if they want to get our votes, they need to. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like I don't, I don't think that what's been happening is working well for campaigns. I think it's, um, and, and I, I do want to say, I do want to say this very clearly because I think it's important. I do think all this conversation about the Latinx vote in 2020 also like kind of minimizes the fact that overall the Latin, the majority across the board, even in Florida, the, the Latinx community voted for for Biden. So it's not, you know, but it is when you compare it to the black vote, right, the African-American vote, where the percentages of folks who, who vote vote Democratic um, are, are really strong compared to what you see, the differences you see in the Latinx culture. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that makes sense. But but that being said, I do think that if we want to see the voter turnout, which um, our community can and should be posting, you know, in terms of of people who are, there's way too many people that are that are sitting out elections in the Latinx community. And I think that is happening because they don't feel heard, that they don't feel that their vote is important, that they're not seeing themselves reflected in campaigns and in messaging. Um, and I think that's something that needs to change. So I, I don't know that, I don't think you can keep talking about just a Latinx vote 
I think you have to talk about all of the differences and, and how to find out how to have conversations, real authentic conversations with all of us. So it it sounds like to me that maybe our time as Latinx voters, as the Latinx community, our time hasn't come yet. Even though we keep hearing that it's it's this year, it's this next election, the Latinx voters are going to change it. Would you agree with that? Or our moment yep. hasn't come yet? Yeah, that's what I, I, I definitely believe that the moment of the Latinx community and the American um, national political scene has not happened yet. And I think you see that in who the candidates are, the attention and the profile of our national candidates, right? I mean, you look at Julian Castro and running as a presidential candidate was fantastic. But I was disappointed that there wasn't more attention, that there wasn't more I don't know. I don't think people took his campaign seriously enough, honestly. I think it was, I felt like he was tokenized in some way. And and I really think that it was a shame because of the accomplishments of being mayor, of being a cabinet member. The experiences that he brought weren't really given their due. And so I think that um, we need to continue to push. And that's why it's so important that we have Latinx candidates that run all across the board that we build our bench, right? And and I think that's something that I'm really proud to, to say that we're doing in Oregon and we've got some great groups that are doing it, that are working really hard to do that, like Oregon Futures Lab. We have candidates in the legislature who are coming on board. We have school board candidates that are coming on board, right? And that needs to happen in every state. And we need to be pushing up then, applying upward pressure so that candidates continue, Latinx candidates continue to run for higher positions, that we have more of us in in national office, um, and that, you know, we're taken seriously when it comes to the national conversation about politics. Thank you. I I, I couldn't agree more, um, especially on the, what you were saying about Julian Castro campaign, you know, as a as a person who has an accent mark over a vowel in, in his name and Ivan, I mean, it was, I, I know it seems trivial, but it meant something to me to see an accent mark on a billboard, on a lawn sign, uh, and people pronouncing it right. Wow, we're getting there. Um, and, you know, and it's not just that, but also seeing different names show up on the news, like, you know, your name, Carmen Rubio's name, or seen in Hernandez, like, that's really special. And and I don't know what the the future holds for me. But what can we do? Um, You know, what can we as Latinx professionals as Latinx voters do to help one, raise awareness about the importance of voting? to encouraging young people to vote, and then three, supporting BIPOC candidates and politicians like yourself? Um, I think what people do is should support, they should support, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that it's like, it's, it's literally supporting candidates. It takes a lot and you need community support to do that. You need people who are volunteering, you need people who are donating, you need people who are going to show up and be there. You need people who are, you know, pushing your stuff on social media and, and saying that, um, it takes a lot. It does take a community to successfully run for office. And we need our community to, to be there when we do that. And I think that's a, that's a huge thing. Um, and I do think that there, you know, is 
um, power in numbers, right? So I think the more the more folks that we have from the Latinx community in elected office, the the more our perspective is going to be shared more broadly. Um, it, it should never just be a one and only because one person can never have the perspective of an entire community. Um, and so in supporting so supporting multiple candidates, you know, so that we can grow that is going to be really important. So I think, um, and, you know, one of the things that I um, try to do is, is, you know, mentor and help out when I can and support people who are coming into office. Um, I think that there's a young generation um, right now that are that are jumping in with both feet. I think of uh, Winsbay Campos, um, who is the youngest woman ever elected to the House, and she is the first Latina to represent her district. Um, we've got Ricky Ruiz, who is in, in the district over from mine. He's also the first Latino man to represent his district. Um, he's also very, you know, one of the younger members to to run for the House, right? So we've got these folks who are who are jumping into politics, who are running for the for the legislature, for the school board, for city councils, um, and that's an incredible thing. And we need our community to support uh, to support that work and support those efforts. You know, on the on the piece of the community, I, I couldn't agree more. But you know, I've talked to some people. And also, you know, from my own experience, sometimes we hesitate to get involved with the campaign or canvas or do those voting activities because of the stories that we see, read or hear about in terms of people being either harassed or turned away or just having a really negative experience because they are BIPOC and trying to help vote. So what do you tell those people, I guess, including me, about is there something that we can do or that campaigns can do to make sure that they take into account diversity, equity, and inclusion issues in those sort of voting or campaign? Yeah, I think, you know, I think there are many ways for people to come. And I think what you talk about is a real thing, right? Like it is, um, you, there's concern about showing up at somebody's door if you're going door to door and how are you going to be taken as a brown man, right? Showing up there. Um, I know people who have been self-conscious about an accent when they're, if they're talking to somebody on the phone, right? Like these are all real things that people have concerns about. Um, I think that it's in part up to campaigns to find out ways to plug people in, in a way that's comfortable and works for them. And I also think it's important. I mean, this is where like white people can step up and, and show some solidarity with folks. If you want to go door to door knocking as a pair and, and do that, that's a way that you can use white privilege to help pave the way and strengthen somebody's involvement and make them feel more comfortable in what they're doing. But 2020 was interesting, right? Because the whole door-to-door thing wasn't a thing. So that's when social media became more important and your ability to really um, amplify the works that that people were doing that you supported, candidates that you supported, initiatives that you supported through social media, right? That seems less risky. That seems like something that that anybody can do. Donating dollars, and I know I've said that before, but it's just, it takes money to run a campaign. And especially with some of these smaller races, it doesn't take that much money. So any kind of grassroots donation makes a difference to candidates. I, I don't know any candidate who would ever say, no, that's that's not big enough donation for, for me to accept it. Like, that's just not a thing. Um, so anybody can can do that. And, and you truly are, with grassroots donations, building a part of collective to make something stronger and to and to make a difference. And that's a really powerful thing. We've seen the power of grassroots donations time and time again. 
And, you know, and I think it is, don't underestimate the power of talking to your family and doing that work. But I do think that there is a responsibility for campaigns to figure out how they can make safer spaces and to, and to bring people in and be welcoming spaces for people. Thank you. One thing you mentioned was local races. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this. Can you tell us why it's important to vote not just in national elections, but local elections, races, also vote for ballot measures and and things like that as well? Yeah, it's, you know, there was so much attention given to the presidential race this time around in 2020, and we knew that was going to happen, right? Actually, that's one of the reasons I think there were so many ballot initiatives here in Oregon on the ballot is that people knew there was going to be fantastic turnout because this was a, a watershed presidential election. But while the national landscape and political landscape has huge impacts on us in a lot of ways, everything from the environment to Supreme Court nominees to immigration, right? The things that affect us day in and day out, those are decisions that are made at the local level. Those are made by your city council members. Those are made by your school board members. Those are made by county commissioners, mayors, state representatives and legislators. Those are things that are happening at the local level. You know, where I live, a huge concern is is safe streets. We have some of the most dangerous streets out here in East Portland, where I live. And that that's beginning to change because of investment that has been made by people in the state legislature. You know, we have we fought hard and came home with a lot of money to fix some of the most dangerous high crash intersections, investments in safe sidewalks for people to walk on, right? All of that happened at the local level, and that is making a fundamental, measurable change in people's lives and the livability of our neighborhoods. It's about making investments in areas that have long been neglected. All of those things are local elections. And I would even say for things like school board elections, for a long time here um, in the school district where I live, um, there was an issue with uh, having a board that didn't allow contraceptive access at the school clinics, right? They would prescribe you contraception or birth control pills or whatever it was, but you had to go down to like the Walgreens to actually get it filled. And that was like a step that I don't know, I I don't think a lot of high school students might make. There was actually a change in the school board. There were a couple of Latinas and another mom who, who ran and changed that school board and they were able to pass that. That's phenomenal. So these things that have huge impacts on our community are happening at the local level. And it's also where our bench comes from. It's also where we are having people who are getting experience with budgets, getting experience with governing, getting experience with constituent issues, who are then getting um, the experience they need to run for higher offices. And and that's a vital, important thing, too. So so the national elections get a lot of attention. It's very exciting. um, But almost more important to people are the things that are happening at their local level. Thank you. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Because every time I get my my ballot and I see, you know, as you go down the down the page and you're like, I don't know who this person is. Uh, and there's very little information. I mean, there is there is information on them. But and then I think, you know, every time I complain about there not being a speed bump somewhere, I'm like, there should be something here. And someone needs to do this, something about this. There is somebody uh, to do that. It is right, somebody's is. job. <laughs> you, just have to, you just have to find that person. Or you right. could be that person. That's the other thing, right. too. You could be yeah, speed, speed bump guy. I'll be doing that when I'm moonlighting after being a lawyer at, at the firm. So thank you so much for, for joining me today and, and, for, and for your honesty, for fixing the misconception that there's a Latinx vote. 
Is there anything I left out that you'd like to add? Well, there's something that I left out when I was answering your last question about the importance of local things. I mean, I one of the things that I'm most proud of was the universal preschool measure that we just passed in Multnomah County. I mean, that is something that um, people, you know, it, it did show up in presidential campaigns, right? Universal child care, universal preschool, how fantastic that would be. That was something that we've actually been working on for years here in Multnomah County. Um, there were two different um, campaigns that were working on it. We unified and we were able to get it done, which means we passed something here locally that is going to be a game changer for three and four year olds in Multnomah County. It's a game changer for those families, for the moms who are going to be able to work now because they can afford to. They don't have to worry about the cost of, of preschool. It's a game changer for those workers who are going to get a living wage, right? So I think that's like a, a huge example of something that we are doing locally that is going to make a difference in people's lives and why it's important to vote for things like that. And it's also something that, again, sets the stage for things that could be a national model that we could take bigger. So it, it's it's really powerful what we can do. And I think we centered brown and black children in how we designed this program, because for me, some of those three and four-year-old uh, Latinx kids, they can be the next mayor of our city. They can be future elected officials. So it's about you know making investments in our community early on so that we can continue to build our power. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, it's uh, a little funny. You, you mentioned that measure because I didn't go to preschool. When I started kindergarten, I was behind in terms of I didn't have as many friends. I mean, I turned out fine. There's a debate on that, uh, <laughs> but I think that's that's really great. Um, I'm really glad that we have people here in Monoma County who are looking out uh, for everybody and understand that it's never too early to um, help uh, change someone's life. So again, thank you for joining me today. This has been an episode of Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality a new podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. We focus on historical and ongoing barriers to voting. Want to find out more? Hit subscribe. I am Ivan Resendiz Gutierrez, one of the hosts. Frame Masters is our creative director. Miranda Schaefer, our producer. Gabriel Granillo is our editor. Special thanks to Fiona McCann and to our host, Celia Howes. And a very special thanks. Gracias. Muchísimas gracias to Monoma County Commissioner uh, Jessica Vega-Peterson for joining us today. Thank you. This was fantastic. Thanks so much for having me.